going to look at Luke 22. We're going to talk this evening about the eager Savior. And in the passage, there are there are a number of things that Jesus is doing. The three that I want to highlight this evening is the first is that Jesus is rewriting history. So you'll notice that it's the night of the Passover. So they are to gather together and they're to celebrate the Passover feast. And um, typically what would happen is at the, fa- at the feast, as they would get together, first it was usually a family. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But they would gather together and they would celebrate this meal and the way that the meal is started is typically the youngest person in the house um, was tasked to ask the question, and that is, why is tonight different from all the other nights? And then the head, the head of the house who would lead them through the Passover feast would begin to talk about the Passover. And this is a meal that it, when Jesus and his apostles are celebrating it, would have been celebrated for a thousand, twelve, fifteen hundred years. That's a long time. There's a lot of history at this point wrapped up. And it's the celebration of the night that God passed over their houses, having put the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorpost of their home. Um, the lamb of of God at that point was slain and the people were protected. Their firstborn was protected when uh, the angel of judgment passed through Egypt. And then they made their way out of Egypt in haste. And so that is the celebration. When the apostles and Jesus gather together to celebrate, we read that they reclined at the table Verse 14, and when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And then in verse 15, Jesus opens his mouth and he begins to speak. Only it's not the traditional Passover supper that he's speaking of. At this point, Jesus is rewriting the supper. He is taking the Passover supper, which for 1,500 years was a celebration of what God had done in the Exodus. And he is he's doing something completely new. He's telling them, essentially, that the supper that they are celebrating, which is the Passover, is being transformed before their very eyes from the Passover to the Lord's Supper to His Supper, to the Supper that is a celebration of what is about to take place. And so you'll notice when He begins to tell them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, (coughs) only it's not going to look anything like the Passover you've celebrated all your life. But He tells them it's the Passover before I suffer. Verse 16, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup. And then he took the bread. And he told them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And this bread is my body, which is broken for you and given to you. And unless you eat this bread, you don't 
partake of me. And right before their eyes, Jesus takes what for 1,500 years had symbolized God's provision in the Exodus, and he transforms it into the ultimate meal. The Last Supper with his apostles is now the Lord's Supper. A new meal. A new meal to be celebrated by his people, he says, until he comes again. The Apostle Paul tells us, as often as you gather together, celebrate this meal. In doing all of this, Jesus is also saying that Passover supper so long ago was really a supper pointing to me. It's always been about me. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world isn't on the table for you. He's at the table with you. And He is going to offer Himself for you very soon. The second thing that He does in the supper is He begins to establish a new community. So the eager Savior who wants to celebrate this Passover is not just transforming the supper. He's transforming them. So think about it. It's, it's interesting. I almost want to hear what are, the, what are the disciples thinking because he tells them that they are to go and they are to, um, uh, it's the, the day of unleavened bread had come. The Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus tells Peter and John, go make preparations. And they ask, where do you want us to prepare it? And I wonder when they asked that question if there wasn't a little something bound up in that. Because think about this. They should be eating the Passover with their families. Families ate the Passover together. Not friends. You didn't. It, the Passover is not the time where you call up everybody and go, Hey, we're having potluck tonight. Why don't you all come on over and we'll play some cards later tonight. Okay. It's a celebration of the family. So the family unit would come together. And the head of the household, he would lead them through the supper. And there were various points and there were questions and there were responses and there were certain things that were supposed to go on. And Jesus is taking the supper and he's calling his apostles together and he's pulling them out of their family units and he's pulling them into a new family unit. And and something of what is is implied in that is that this unit, this body, is different than the family unit. He's challenged them several times before, right? If you don't leave father and mother, sister and brother, and come and follow me, you have no part in my kingdom. He's challenged those family dynamics to some degree. And really, he's not telling you to to not celebrate your family. He's not telling you to not not be tight and close-knit. And He's not saying any of that. But what he is saying is this, that the bond that believers have in him transcends everything. I've said this before. It's why you can pick up and you can travel around the globe and you can run into someone who's a professing believer and you can meet with them in their home and feel as if they're family. Because part of what he's doing is he's saying, listen, 
as you participate in me, you're participating with one another. And so the first thing that he does is he creates a new sort of intimacy, a new intimate family. A family that, that whose foundation is faith in the Lord Jesus, whose celebration is the supper, who, who celebrate and take joy and delight in the relationship with the Lord through what Jesus has done for them. And so he pulls us together in a new way. That's why we fellowship together. That's why we break bread together. That's why we spend time together. That's why we have um, meetings and we share our burdens with each other. Because sometimes the blood relationship can't bear that burden. Because we go through things and we do things together that we might not do with that family. The second thing that happens is that he... He's telling them that they're going to be a part of a a new radical generation, if you will. And the way that he does this is in verse 25. A dispute arises in 24 and there's chaos ensuing at the meal, okay? And so Jesus steps in to quell the questions. They, They were questioning amongst themselves who it was that was going to betray him. And then a whole other line of questions comes up. And it's a dispute. Who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? And what does Jesus tell them? He says, you know what? My kingdom isn't going to be like the kingdoms of the Gentiles. Right? The kingdom that you're now going to be a part of isn't going to be like all those other kingdoms where they have kings and benefactors and and basically it was the good old boy system right if you had money if you had wealth if you were at the top then you could be benevolent and people owed you and you always wanted to be with them and they didn't want to be with you but occasionally they would grace you with their presence and so we had this big tiered system much the way every society since then has had and jesus says this community isn't going to be like that. There aren't, you're not going to be at the top looking down on everybody else. You're going to be at the bottom looking up and at the top looking down. And you're going to be serving each other and caring for each other in ways that you haven't before. Because my kingdom isn't like the kingdoms of this world. And the way that he says that to them, he says, verse 26, but you're not to be like that. The greatest among you should be the youngest. Huh? The greatest among you, the youngest? No. The greatest among you is the person who's the oldest and the wisest and has, you know, R-H-I-P. When I was a young airman, R-H-I-P meant rank has its privileges. Okay? (coughs) And what that meant was, (laughs) the further down you were, the worse it was because everything rolls downhill. And and you were at the bottom of the heap, and so they pushed you around, and they gave you terrible shifts, and they put you on the worst post, and they did all that kind of stuff to you because they had privilege. They were at the top, the top, the top of our system, right? And then this weird thing happened. I got out. I went to seminary. I went to college. 
And then I went to officer candidate school. And then it became a first lieutenant. And you know what I found? Rank doesn't have any privilege. None. I'm an officer now and I get nothing. And the further up the chain you go, the more they tell you, you got to be a servant leader. You got to love those guys. You got to lead from the you got to lead from the bottom. You got to be the last at the dinner table. You I'm like, what happened to RHIP? And these guys are wondering, what happened to RHIP? And Jesus says, I am at the table with you. And I'm about to serve you in a way that nobody else has ever served you. I'm going to love you to the very end. See, he's turning, he's turning what they thought the world to be upside down. Finally, he establishes a new community through role reversals. If you look at what he says with Peter, he has an interaction with them. And basically he's telling them, listen, you know, Peter, you're going to betray me. This is not... This is not going to be a good moment in your life. But then he says this, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. You're going to mess up royally, but may your, I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says this, and when you have turned back, and when you have repented, do what? Serve your brother. That seem odd. It is. It's odd. He he's basically saying to Peter, "You're going to be a leader, but you're going to fail miserably before you are." He's already told him, "I am going to build my church, Peter, on your confession." Not Peter, but Peter's confession that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. But it came from Peter, no less. And he would be a monumental figure in the building of the church and the establishing of the church and rolling things out. And Jesus is saying to him, I'm going to use you. The most unlikely of people. You're going to deny me, verse 34. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny even knowing me, Peter. But you know what? I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you and your confession in a mighty way in the building of my church. And you're going to serve your brothers. You're going to exhort them and encourage them and lead them. And you're going to take the theological wisdom. And you're going to take your knowledge of me and the gospel. And you are going to build the church. But first, you're going to look really pathetic, and you're going to fail miserably. That's, that's completely against the grain. The world says we're, we only take the best and the brightest. We take those who aren't failures, and they are leaders. And Jesus says, that's not how I'm going to do it. And we shouldn't be surprised, because down through history... It's been nothing but a train wreck of individuals that God has been using. 
In fact, sometimes he does it as if to say that the the all-surpassing power is not in you, but in me. That's what Paul says in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this all-surpassing power, this gospel message has been placed into jars of clay in order that people will know it's of me. And here's the third thing he does. He crushes our greatest need. Our greatest need as humans, people, is to be loved and to be cherished and to be recognized. When you look at the disciples' argument in verse 24, you scratch your head. They're really not getting it at this point. They're thinking earthly kingdoms still, and so there's dispute amongst them about who is going to be the greatest. And as it's Jesus, who do you love most? Who do you cherish most? Who do you trust most? To be the greatest in your kingdom. If you go back to verse 14. Jesus says to them. I have eagerly desired. To eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Eagerly desired. Is actually one word. Uh, translators struggle with exactly how to translate it, but the essence of it is, with desire, I have desired. And so we say a strong desire, an eager desire, a, a desperate longing, if you will. And essentially what Jesus is saying to them is, I desire more than anything, For you to know my love for you. That's essentially what he's saying. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Before I die. Before I love you to the very end. Before I go all the way for you. I want you to know. And I want the opportunity to tell you just how much I love you. So that you will know, that you will experience the depth of my love for you. Because I am the Passover lamb. I am the one who will take away the sin of the world. And I have loved you, essentially what Jesus is saying, I have loved you and the way that I loved you should should free you from letting any other love in your life consume you. And become the ultimate love. Jesus is saying, I'm the ultimate. And I love you. Now think about that. On the very front end of this meal, knowing he would be betrayed, knowing that he's about to die, his focus is to tell his disciples how very much he cares for them. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. You see, that's a love that should free us. That's a love that you can take to the bank and say, 
the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, loves me. I dare say, all right, I don't know. Let's take somebody. Um, who's like a really good-looking actor? I, is Russell Crowe? No. Brad Pitt? No. Brad Pitt? Okay. So, so ladies, ladies, if Brad Pitt whispered in your ear, I love you. Hey, you know, in a, you know, oh, like in a special sort of a way, not, you know, not romantic love, but. You know, like you, you were having your picture and, you know, I really like you. Would you tell somebody that? Yeah, you'd feel pretty special. Yeah, hey, come on, you know. Hypothetically speaking, you would feel special. If somebody really important came along and they doted on you and they loved you. Yeah. Jesus is saying to his disciples, his apostles, and he says to you and I, I love you. And the way that he says it, and has said it, and continues to say it, is through his word and through the supper. The supper that we come to celebrate tonight is the greatest act of love in human history. Because while You and I were yet sinners. Christ loved us enough to die for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the eager Savior. The one who rewrote history. The one who established new community. The one who loved us all the way to the very end. Father, we thank you and we praise you, and I pray that we will find a way to treasure that in our hearts, to hear that whisper in our ear, to know that we are loved by you. How good that is, how encouraging, and what a blessing for us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to the supper, the invitation is for all of you, all who are weary, all who are bruised and battered and all who are trusting Christ. If you've been baptized, the supper is for you. And the invitation is to come and to ponder the body, to think about those relationships. When the Apostle Paul tells us to do that, the context seems clear if you look at it. And There were many that were coming. They were disregarding their neighbors and their friends and those who were celebrating the supper and they were getting drunk and they were feasting without each other and they weren't being considered and they weren't considering those around them in their relationships. And so the admonition is to evaluate those relationships as you come to the table this evening. But to come. To come with all your baggage come in repentance and to celebrate the Lord's love for you. Let's stand. We'll sing the first and the second stanza of the power of the cross.